Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good morning. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that sometimes tackles pretty tough topics. I think the topic that we have today is more interesting than tough, and it certainly is more significant. Uh, right now, I am speaking with Catherine Bartlett. And Catherine, shall I call you professor? Shall I call you doctor? What, should, what would you like me to call you? Kate is fine. Thank you. Kate. Okay. I should have asked you that <laughs> off the air. Thank you so much for being with us, Kate. Kate is a uh, Kenneth Pye professor of law. She has served as the dean of Duke Law School from 2000 to 2007. She teaches family law and employment discrimination law, gender and law, and contracts. And she has been widely published, including several volumes of textbooks. And and, uh, am am I hitting the mark here so far, Kate? Pretty good. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) <laughs> Good. Well, um, the reason that I contacted Kate is because I ran across an article about gender and the law. And I know oftentimes we have had many shows dealing with the significance of law when it comes to family court, when it comes to child custody. Um, but law in general is a bigger picture and gender. Um, sometimes we don't discuss that. And so that's one of the things that I was really interested in your article about, Kate, is the overall picture. And one of the things that I gleaned from you or from reading about you is that I never really thought of this before. I guess we all know this, but sometimes knowing things and realizing it are two different things. Right. But when we're talking about the law, we're talking about two separate things. We're talking about the laws, and then we're talking about the practice of the laws. Is that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, law law functions as a system, and then law also has specific requirements or prohibitions. And yeah, it's kind of a, it's a very large package of of, of social control. Um, and we think of law sometimes as an oppressive system. We think of law uh, simultaneously. We can think of law as uh, uh, the means by which one might achieve um, freedom from oppression. Um, you know, there's, there's, it's law. It comes in many different forms, and it gives us um, many different instructions. And, and my interest is actually more in less. Well, in my in my teaching and a lot of my research, I am very involved with specific laws and their effect and how we might make them better. The particular piece that you have picked up on deals more with law as a system and how law contributes to a kind of structural, um, uh, a a structure of what we take for granted in this society, which uh, often um, kind of legitimizes uh, inequalities within within society that would be difficult to 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 justify 
um, but the law functions in a way that makes certain things seem obvious and natural, and so we don't think to question them. And so I'm really interested in the kind of structural effects of the law on the maintenance and, and creation of, of inequality. Okay, so when we talk about law and we talk about those two parts, um, the actual laws are kind of, that's, that's, we're going to put that on the side right now for this conversation. We're going to talk about that system and what it means and what it particularly means when we're talking about gender. Now, it can mean a lot of things for race, you know, whatever, but the gender is the one that we're particularly going to talk about today. And you have gender in the law. What are I do. the areas? That what are the areas that you see either complementing or discordant or why gender and law? Why can't we just say law, law systems? I mean, it's much more complex than that, right? So the fi- the field of gender and law is, is interesting in and of itself, and that's a really good question that you asked. Originally, when sex discrimination courses were first being taught in law schools, which started about the mid-'70s, they those courses consisted of the, a number of areas of law that were thought to especially implicate women's interests. So you had a unit on family law, you had a, a unit on the workplace, you had a unit on domestic violence, you had a, un, a unit on reproductive rights, and these were all kind of pasted together as these these are this is women's law. These are the laws that especially affect uh, women's lives, and. Much of the materials, including my own casebook in the area, still focus on those hot spots, those areas where where the law has, where the gender uh, the underlying gender assumptions are especially plain and where some changes would really make a difference to women but increasingly we're seeing gender the, the deep the, the longer we've been in this business the more we're seeing the genderedness of all areas of the law even those that don't initially present as a women a woman's area or a gender area so for example um you know there have been analysis actually these are these are these have been around for a while but just as an easy example um analyses of how certain evidentiary presumptions discount women's take on a, a situation, how women might evaluate um, a situation and what evidence should be re- considered relevant to decide what happened and what didn't happen, are reflecting different assumptions about men and women and and are often assuming that the male take on a situation would be the more valid one. And so evidentiary pres- presumptions may be uh, gendered. Um, different rules about civil procedure, just the processes by which we take a case from an initial complaint through to the end have been said to be gendered. Corporate law, so that doesn't seem like a a, a sex subject, but uh, there have also been a number of analyses showing how corporate law is gendered insofar as the values that it makes paramount are those typically associated with men rather than women. So it's become um, a kind of uh, the, the critique, the gender critique has spread into virtually all areas of the law. Wow. That, but you know, it, I but it, to... as a, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just going to reinforce, you know, it's, it's, I, it's, it's still the case that when you take a gender in law course, you are talking about reproductive rights more than you are evidence or civil procedure. But uh, the, the, the point is, 
that so much of the legal system takes things for granted that once you look below the surface, you see that some of the things it takes for granted are taking taking sides or or reinforcing stereotypes about men and about women. Well, and I think what you were saying about how the assumption that, that when um, what you were saying about the evidentiary rules or, or uh, assumptions, that if it was the male viewpoint, that was legitimate. That that was the legitimate, legitimate viewpoint, and anything else that varied from that was less than legitimate or less than accurate or less than important. Um, and we, of Right, so you've done... You've done work before, I noticed, on, on domestic violence and, and uh, abuse. So remember back in the days when um, to it, was con- it could be considered not rape if the woman didn't resist enough. Oh, yes. And yes, that absolutely. amount that they didn't resist enough, is, it was, it, there was, that was the time in which a woman would have to resist the way a man would resist if the man were in the same situation. So you can see how a power imbalance might affect the way you thought it was in your interest to react if you have been sexually assaulted. And a, and a, and a weaker, a, 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 a person who had less strength and less leverage and was less aggressive more generally um, was nevertheless expected to resist as if she were a man or as if a man would expect he would respond in the same situation. So that's an example where, you know, a kind of a gendered norm was imposed that had the effect of uh, fact finders concluding that women must have wanted it because they didn't resist hard enough when when it was unrealistic to expect, not even really in women's physical interest, to put up a fight that they couldn't win. so that's that's just an, one example. Exactly. When you were talking though about how this is bleeding out of those traditional uh, areas that we usually think mm-hmm. of, I, when you were describing the uh, areas of law that traditionally were viewed as having interest or import for women, the family law, the work issues, the mm-hmm. domestic mm-hmm. violence, reproductive rights, I remembered uh, you know 150 years ago when I first got out of college, I worked for a local newspaper, a daily newspaper, and they still had women's pages. And of course, on the women's right. pages with the recipes, the pictures of the wedding, wedding, you know, the weddings and the engagements, and maybe a few features on, you know, special ways to clean or whatever. Those were the areas that were perceived as being of special interest to women. Um, right. There were no. And if you looked at the want pages, ads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, if you and looked at so, the want ads, it was even more explicit what women could apply for and what they couldn't. Oh, exactly, exactly. You, I mean, didn't I think that we actually had categories: women's employment, men's employment. Right, exactly. There I, were. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, the, this notion that only if it was something of total non-interest to men was it a woman's issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And yeah, and of course, over the last twenty-five, thirty years, we've started to expand from that. But I am was particularly interested in how you mentioned corporate law, for example. How is that different from work law? How how have we expanded this uh, understanding of women's interest into corporate law? So this is not my field of specialty, but um, one of the. Um, so when we think about male values and female values, a denomination that I'm very uncomfortable with because of the 
obvious stereotypes that come with that kind of labeling. Um, it was all of the things that it was assumed men, male corporate leaders would be engaged in, would be profit-seeking, would be, you know, um, uh, highly competitive, um, and the kinds of excesses that you would want to control for in corporate law all had a kind of aggressive male figure in mind. And one of the arguments that has been raised for wanting to get more females on corporate boards is the idea that there are other ways to serve the corporation than acting as the traditional stereotypical male and that more collaborative models, more societal, um, thinking more in terms of societal benefit rather than just the benefit of the corporation are actually superior ways of thinking about leadership of for-profit organizations. So, um, again, I'm, I'm not going to be able to cite chapter and verse of particular corporate governance standards that would oh, exemplify the difference between male and female. Yeah, yeah. but the idea is that, that um, there's a certain competitive market model that's in mind that comes with the, the, the men that lawmakers would have in mind when they enacted corporate law that don't take account of other values that women might bring to the table. Well, and and it's interesting, of course, our whole culture is changing a little bit and becoming more, I guess, feminized because we're starting to have legitimate views or, or view women's perspectives as more legitimate for a general um, uh, population rather than just females. Um, and we've seen that gradually happening. But I deal with a lot, and I see a lot, and we talk a lot about family law and family court. And are you seeing or do you see any particular area of the law that is experiencing um, more issues with gender assumptions than others, or is it all about the same? So I think there's still – it's really hard to – prioritize in that way. I think we're still seeing an amazing number of stereotypes in the workplace that are limiting women's uh, opportunities. I mean, we we still think of work as something where the workplace is fixed and women either have to conform to it or not, rather than workplace being part of a structure, a full structure that's got political components and economic components and workplace components and family components that all seem to be stacked against women in a, in a certain way. So I would, I would say employment law is still, I mean, we've, we've made a whole lot of progress in helping women who can compete on the existing terms of the of the workplace where women can present themselves to have the same availability, the same qualities as men have, we've made a lot of progress in the law toward making sure that those women can get ahead like men can get ahead. What we haven't been nearly as good at is finding ways to shake up uh, a basic workplace structure that is very unfriendly to many women in various stages of of their lives. So, um, you know, we 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 still again, we, if 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 a, if a woman can present the same uh, um, 
profile is is a is a man, and this is mostly privileged women. Um, yes. A lot of those barriers have been broken, and the law is fairly supportive of women being able to identify the stereotypes that have been applied against them and getting relief from those and being able to compete with men. Um, but insofar as a, as a lot of women, and here's where I think the inner, the overlap between sex and class inequality is really a, is, 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 is most apparent. Um, a, a lot of women face other issues besides just workplace stereotypes that have to do with their resources, with their ability to take care of their children, who are still considered primarily their responsibility, not the father's responsibility, as far as caretaking. Um, women who who are members of racial minorities, who are subject to more than those more than those um, that first layer of stereotyping, and. And and there, I think, you know, again, we've got a, a, a whole array of structural f factors. We've got workplace that's, you know, so many jobs, you know, eight to five, you get two weeks of vacation a year, very, very little flexibility, uh, you know, having to be physically at work. Um, we've, we've got, um, you know, media continuing to value women primarily for their, for their looks. We've got... Um, so many forces still continuing to have women think of their choices in terms of traditional female choices, um, either to be homemakers or maybe school teachers or secretaries, even in the same job category like lawyers, tending to be more, for example, in-house counsel rather than the competitive litigator. Um, we've got lots of things that are affecting the choices women make and their ability to make certain choices because of the way those, in this case, the jobs are, are structured, um, that that mean we have to take into account not just the kind of stereotypes that worked against, work against very privileged women, but other other forms of uh, hierarchy that are are being reinforced by these these uh, traditional structures. Well, I don't know if that, was, out, if that was clear, but you know how how much of this is gender, how much of it is class, how much of it is economic background. You know, there there are so many factors. Um, it sometimes is difficult, I, I would imagine, to factor, you know, to to take it all into account and say, well, this is the culprit here, and this is what needs to be changed because there's so many things that influence um, what what's happening. Um, I, my well, I think that's right. Yeah, my daughter and I were having a conversation about her career goals, and she said something about her career trajectory. She's an accountant. And I I just had to think about this, and I thought, you do understand that like 90% of the world just has a job. This, is, this mm -hmm. is very privileged for you to be able to consider a career trajectory in your life planning. Um, and is that because you're a woman? No. I mean, that's but, – but she's privileged. You know, she's, a, she's mm -hmm. privileged um, in her education, where she lives, you know, the whole thing. So um, how much of this is, you know, if, if her career trajectory isn't going the way she wants, is it because she's female? Is it because of, uh, you know, I mean, what? how do you look at all this stuff? How do you separate gender and race and class? How do, how do you separate all that? And when we're looking at the law, we're trying to, I guess, in a way, quantify or write it down as a set of rules or whatever. It just seems like such an overwhelming task to me to identify it and then actually address it. 
Yeah, so so first, um, it isn't very easy to separate it. Um, and I think the whole idea of separating it presupposes that we have these separate kind of independent bases of discrimination or basis of powerlessness or disadvantage. And and one of the one of the points that that I really am currently very taken with is that we need to think of them not just as how much of it is due to this and how much of it is due to that as a kind of cumulative process, some women being subject to more of these disadvantages than others. But I think we need to appreciate how much each of these systems of what we might call subordination or oppression really function very similarly and in relationship to one another. And and um, that's what I was writing about in the in this more recent piece. That the it's the same dynamic of 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 hierarchy where a lot of damage is done by the invisible assumptions that are made that are made to seem obvious and natural. For example, this this assumption that whatever whatever class we're in, whatever job we're in, whatever marriage we're in, we chose it. And this is a free society and, you know, you kind of get what you deserve. If you work really hard and, and um, are smart enough, you ought to be able to succeed in this society. And the idea is if you're, if you're not, that means it's your own, it's your own fault. Um, and yeah, that's so one of my, this, my... this idea that – I'm sorry – that's that's one of my uh, that, that's crazy making for me. That I, I every now and then work with um, women coming out of prison, and, and I will say, how many of you think that you can be anything you want to be as long as you're willing to work hard enough and you want it badly enough? And invariably, their hands go up, and I go, great. And then I propose some sort of outrageous thing for me uh, that I clearly, you know, like I, um, you know, I'm I'm overweight, I'm older, and, you know, I, okay, I want to be a jockey. I'm willing to work really hard for it. I'm willing to. I really, really want it. What happens when I can't be it? Because clearly I cannot be it. Oh, and by the way, I'm allergic to horses. But I really want to be a jockey. So <laughs> if I work, if if I'm not, if I'm not the jockey, then why not? Well, clearly it's my fault. I didn't work hard enough. I didn't want it badly enough. There was something somehow or other. It's my fault. Right. And, and I, so we need to th- we need to think more about what it is that's locked you and maybe more especially these women you're talking to into the systems where they think they can succeed at whatever they want to do and they the the the, the and, and what's keeping them down is not very tangible it's not very visible to them the world has been structured in a way that makes it seem as if the way things are is the way they ought to be is the natural way of doing things so it's, to me that's a, just a, a really important thing that needs to be appreciated about ending any one of these strands of discrimination, you know, whether it's sex or class or, or race, um, it, it really needs to be understood what the dynamic of that form of disadvantage or hierarchy is and how it relates to other hierarchies. Because it, kind of, it, it all kind of works together where, you, where we get used to thinking of the world and not intervening in whatever social arrangements there are. And not intervening seems like the neutral thing to be doing when the, the absence of intervention may well be what's making it all seem natural, obvious, and the way things ought to be. There's in another thing dynamic, that works. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say in this dynamic, this hierarchy that you're talking about, talking about um, that crosses several issues, you know, gender, race, culture, whatever, uh, do you, is it your feeling that since they're similar, that if we can address one kind of set of those or whatever, that it will automatically help with the others? or is it, Just the opposite. Things? 
just the opposite. I think, I think, um, you know, if you're if if you're a poor woman and you get rid of the gender advantage, you still have the class advantage. So you, there are the the fact that there are multiple systems of of disadvantage might help create certain alliances that are very helpful in dismantling two or more systems. Um, but but it, it's um, if you're if you're both poor and female and black, let's say, you would need to get rid of all of those to really um, to, to 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 experience life the way the privileged experience it. So, I think that that's why that's why it seems to me an understanding of the structural nature of this and how those structures fit together is really critical to the improvement in any one of these. Otherwise, you're only going to be getting a, 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 piece, a piece of the problem. I mean, that's why I was emphasizing before the that the, the feminism now has really done a great job for privileged white women. Um, we're much yes. better off than we used to be before. Um, yes. So we peeled off... <laughs> yes, yes, we can think about career trajectories, but um, yeah. in in a society in which, um, of course, things used to be much more mobile than they are now. So, one, it was possible to get out of uh, to, to be of the wrong gender and class and and get out of it 40 years ago in a way that's really much more much more difficult, uh, much more difficult today. There's another thing that's going on that I want to be sure um, I put on the table, which is coming from all of the great behavioral psychology that's both well, been going on for the last 50 years, but we're getting much more attention to it recently, which is this human tendency to divide people into us and them and winners and losers and the deserving and the undeserving. And of course, in today's politics, we've, we've got a, somebody who's actually trying to to divide in that way. And I think um, this feeds the sense of deservedness of anybody who's made it thinks they deserve to have made it. And the fact that there are losers makes them feel even better about being a winner. So if you don't, if if you're not challenging the system of hierarchies, if you're accepting that people are where they deserve to be, having both winners, and, we can't all be winners, right? We, right. It, that that wouldn't make me a winner if there, if everybody was a winner. So we need to create <laughs> losers in order to feel better about ourselves and so this is i think i believe this has always been a human tendency it's what just you know what social psychologists have explained as kind of at the root of racism and and lots of other um racism especially but other forms of we they uh, behavior but for a long time the norm has been uh just like we don't allow people to engage in every one of their sexual fantasy, fantasies just because it might be part of their innate nature that this is one of these this is one of the parts of our innate nature that we ought to be fighting rather than than encouraging and so i you know the the most healthy way to to think about ending systemic inequalities is to think of this collectively as a society in terms of you know who do we want to be as a society how do we what's the best kind of society that we can build and of course the all the research relating to um more economic equality 
being supportive of a better, healthier democracy is is really relevant here. Um, but we're not we're not moving in that direction when when we're when we're instead focused on who's with me and who's against me and who's a winner and who's a loser. So. Um, Again, I think thinking of things systematically helps us to see those the, see that underlying dynamic and the danger of it of, of dividing people and not trying to think of these problems as solutions that we should be arriving at collectively. Okay, let's talk about gender in the law um, what, at, from the standpoint of the recipient. Um, one of the, the articles that you talked was uh, talked about, or one of, one of the other articles that you'd written, uh, you were talking about child custody, and prior, as mm-hmm. you probably are aware, child custody issues are a huge issue, especially uh, for women who are experiencing domestic violence. Um, is there a particular difficulty in that area that you've seen, or are you just looking at it more globally? So on the child custody front. Um, I am a big fan of custody standards that take their cue from how parents divided custody for children in better times. So I I like it because it's gender neutral, and I like it because it doesn't reinforce certain pathologies and certain kinds of unending disputes between parents. It's, so if, if parents had a, had an arrangement for how they took care of the child and the, and the mother was taking care of the child three-quarters of the time, I would be looking for a custody arrangement that respected that greater, not only investment, but that, that greater um, connection to the child that one would have assumed would have developed through that, uh, through that relationship. I'm, I'm big into trying to have... Um, in the gender area as elsewhere, legal standards that dissuade the parties from fighting over it. And this is, this couldn't be more true oh than gosh. in the custody area. <laughs> Are you sure so you're I like a, so, Pardon me? <laughs> I said, oh, my gosh, you want to dissuade the, the parties from, um, from arguing? Are you sure that you're a lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, um, so as you know, in the custody area, we have experimented with lots of different custody standards. We're now on this standard of best interest of the child, which really begs the question of how do you determine what's in the best, you know, what we lots of different views about what that might be. And so, um, you know, I, one of the reasons I like my kind of past caretaking standard as a as a as a benchmark is if men want more respect in the custody allocation arena then they need to um they need to deliver the goods earlier they can't just show up in divorce court and say i've been working uh, long hours to support this family i get equal access um well but in the, fact the, latest, the the studies are showing over and over again that in fact they can you know, in many cases, they can just show up and they will get full custody. I, the, I don't know if you're familiar with the study by Joan Meyer that came out a couple months ago. The staggering yeah, so, numbers of right. Yeah. So men. So I mean, they, the statistics are, are that men who. That's right, they, they and that's what I'm against. Show up. Yeah. 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 It depends yeah. on the jurisdiction, but that's that's definitely what I'm what I'm fighting against. The truth of the matter is, women still get custody a large majority of the time, but men will get men get custody a large majority of the time when they fight for it. So, yeah. um, so again, this is 
this is uh, unfortunately divorce brings out the absolute worst in people. And um, if you are already the one more likely to fight um, to sort of dispositionally, this this will uh, aggravate that. So we have lots of examples of women caving in on basic economic rights that might might be necessary for them to be able to 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 support their children in order to get custody. So they say, okay, you keep the house, you you know, just just don't fight me on custody because they know that um, um, when men fight for custody, they're very successful. Usually yeah. on this assumption that men and women, you know, they say, well, they sort of turn feminism against itself, saying, well, you wanted equality, that means I get e- that means equality for me too, and so I'm the father, you're the mother, we either we we we, we split it, which Let's split it down the yeah. Middle. yes, yeah. right, yeah, right. and and I think I, you know when I first became aware of this situation with child custody several years ago, I thought, gee whiz, this is uh, we kind of shot ourselves in the foot. I mean, I remember, you know, uh, treatises on how fathers can be just as good a parent as ma- as mothers, blah blah blah, um, which I think oftentimes they can be if they choose to be. Um, yes, I do too. I, I think we made the case too too well, you know, because there are some wonderful mothers who are losing custody. Yeah. So and bad fathers, you know. I, I I think that we, you know, maybe we should have, maybe we shouldn't have made that case quite so so well back twenty years ago. <laughs> well, there is a yeah, there is a certain so first the past caretaking standard kind of would take care of that in that. In a, in a lot of states now are giving a lot of weight to who who took care of the child before the divorce, but to, more to your point, there is a certain trap that feminism has fallen into, or at least let me just say conflicting impulses, where what we want as part of our ideal world is not good for us in the short term, and so we do want more equality in caretaking between men and women and that would help us that would help in the in, it would help in the household it would help it in terms of women's opportunities at work and in terms of women's um you know coming into their own as full citizens um but that you're right that that very kind of ideal position may then come back to bite you in the less ideal situation in which we're fighting over something like children where where it seems as if women are taking an inconsistent position. I don't think it is inconsistent if we look at it through the lens of something like past caretaking because we're not saying you you have an advantage because you're a mother. Your advantage is because you took disproportionate care of the child before the divorce and if the roles had been reversed, we would be looking at the father as the main caretaker afterwards. So um so again, I I'm kind of attracted to that uh, to that um that surface neutrality, um, but it has been very controversial, and the, and the the men's the men's uh, the fathers' lobby has been extraordinarily strong in state legislatures. Oh. Which this is all going to be a matter of state law. So um, there are some states where this has worked out much worse than in others. Um, but um, well, yeah, interesting area. That's the other, and and I want to compliment you on the uh, past caretaking because you know I mean what a great idea, um, what a great yardstick to use, and if that thought is original to you, yay, good on you, and I will you know. Um, yeah. So the person who first thought of this is a was a is a Columbia law professor named Elizabeth Scott who does a lot in the family law, um, but I was the. Rep- 
Pardon me? Uh, yes, I just got done reading um, an article by her on gender politics and child custody. Oh, um, very good article. Excellent article. Yeah. I would recommend that highly. Yep. Yep, she's yeah, she's very, very good. good. This was originally her baby, um, but I was on I was the reporter for an American Law Institute project on family law, and I was in charge of the child custody standards. So I was, so I was the one who who drafted this into a form that could be adopted by state legislatures, um, and it hasn't it hasn't except for West Virginia, it hasn't been adopted in its entirety by any state. But um, as I said earlier, a number of states are now giving more attention to past caretaking in their list of other, you know, they'll have a long laundry list of factors to consider in deciding what's in the child's best interest. And past caretaking is becoming more and more important um, as a factor that judges take into account. Well, when we're talking, and I'm, I'm kind of backing up now um, to the more broad term of gender and the law, uh, we have made a tremendous amount of progress, have we not? I mean, I remember as a child where oftentimes, oh, I remember uh, I lived in a rural area in Ohio, and uh, the woman up the road had four or five adult children, and her husband, she was widowed, and he died intestate, and so everything went to her children, and it was just up to her children what they decided that she, where she should live and whether she could keep the home. And I, I mean, it was just an egregious hmm. thing that hmm. this woman was totally at the mercy, and I don't know whether that was just some sort of rural Ohio thing or, or what. Um, I, I mean, there are all sorts of uh, situations that I remember as a child that, where the law seemed to be much harsher on women. Have we, in fact, made some progress? We, you talked about, yes, we've made progress as far as employment law, especially when it comes to uh, opportunities. But in some of the other areas of law, have we, in fact, made inroads into uh, um, kind of smoothing out these gender differences? Yes, I think so. I think there have been a lot of a lot of very productive law reforms and um just to come back to domestic violence domestic violence is still an ac- epidemic but the laws set up to address it are much stronger much speak much more to the problem that actually exists um than than the law used to so that's that's a big area of of um of reform um you know no fault divorce that's pretty old. That's happened a long time ago in most jurisdictions. But but that has been, insofar as divorce used to be something that women would have to, again, give up a lot of its a lot of rights in order to get consent to the divorce. Um, that's 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 been a big uh, improvement. I would say that most explicit gender discriminations in the law have been eliminated. So we've done the easy work. We've done, you know, we've done the work where it's used, you know, where employers used to say only women need apply, or um, <laughs> they didn't pay any attention to domestic violence, or you know, those, the 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 really easy the the really easy stuff has been has been eliminated. Most of what continues to exist that's still legal are um, is something that I'm not an expert in, but are there are various distinctions between male and female mothers and fathers in the immigration law that still exist. But other than that, we've gotten rid of the the sex explicit distinctions in the law. What remain are the what I was referring to earlier as these structural barriers, the things where forces have conjoined both you know the media, the 
our parents' expectations, our spousal expectations, the kind of societal norms that exist, a lot of it is media, I think, to um, define women and to define sex and actually to define poor people as well in ways that are further disempowering, that further limit their opportunities. These are much harder for the law to get at um, uh, uh, they're much harder for the law to get at. Um, we hear a lot about, and I'm sure you have, about implicit bias. So much of the bias that exists, really, I would say the lion's share of it now, that uh, of bias that exists, is not the I hate you because you're a woman or you don't belong here because you're a woman, but it's much more subtle than that. It's, it's exercised by people who don't know they're exercising a discriminatory bias. And it's kind of an underground now. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. I'm, I'm not thinking about it, but I, I, you know, I, at some level, subliminally, I'm noticing that you're black and I'm white, or you're a woman and I'm a man, and and certain things follow from that. That if exposed, I would say, oh no, I didn't mean that, or you know, I, I. Um, but it needs to be exposed. Is the point that these are these are invis- invisible forms. Um, and 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 the and the laws had a big problem in the employment area trying to figure out how do you get rid of bias discriminatory decisions that are made that are that are unintentionally um sexist or racist uh, because uh, we don't like to adjudicate people racist or sexist right it's not it's, it, it, especially when they seem like well-meaning people and that's really all of us. I mean, we're all, most of us now are well-meaning. Um, and the question is, when do, you know, when, when do people who are at the, who, who, who are um, disadvantaged as a result of these implicit attitudes that people have, how, how do they get this heard? How do they make this more visible? And, well, and just so the I, idea I, of how, I, just the idea of how do you, how do you tell? I mean, if yeah, I just like a person, can I just dislike that person regardless of their social status or their race or their right. gender? Um, right. If I don't like them, I mean, is it automatic that somehow or other I'm being implicitly biased against them? How do you yeah. tell whether that's, you know, I, it, it's very... Well, that's pushy, the problem. Very, yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. So I put a lot of stock into kind of public um, conversation and public exposure. So I, I, for example, think this Me Too campaign about sexual harassment is really useful. You see, it gives, it's, it's, uh, um, it's not just an opportunity for people to give their own story in a kind of cathartic way about what happened to me and this, this, I'm, I'm, I'm now realizing this was sexual harassment or I didn't feel comfortable in exposing this before, but now I'm going to tell the story. It's mostly, it's, it's even more useful because other people, when they hear of people's stories, will make connections. They'll see things they hadn't earlier seen. They'll say, you know what? I wouldn't have thought of it that way, but now I see it that way. And so I think, uh, you know, Catherine McKinnon's answer to getting out of this otherwise airtight system of male subordination was what she called, it seems like such an archaic term now, but what she called consciousness raising. And, um, you know, remember remember how quaint that seems now as a concept. But... But really, this Me Too campaign is consciousness raising. It's it's sharing stories so that people can see the the connections to their own lives. They can see uh, they can see 
anecdote by anecdote how all of this fits together, how they may have more to do with this than they thought they did, either from a discriminator or a discriminatee point of view. And it's, 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 you know, the more stories we can hear from people's actual lives, um, I, I think that's, I think that is a much more effective tool than the law um, in reducing reducing this form of discrimination. Ultimately, there's not really, for reasons that you pointed out and others, there's not really a way that the law can be very effective against well-meaning people who engage in behaviors that small, mostly small, sometimes large, you know, are just very difficult to identify as being unlawful discrimination. Well, and I think that, as you mentioned with this campaign, the Me Too campaign, um, and during our conversation you mentioned how it seems to be almost a human behavior. It is a human behavior to divide into them and us. Mm-hmm. Um, and with a, a campaign like the Me Too campaign, then they're all us. You know, we, we put right. a face on each one of these people. We put the, each one of these, you know, uh, theoretical people that's complaining because she was harassed or whatever suddenly becomes a real person because that's an individual saying, this is my story and this is what happened to me. And it seems to me um, that that's helpful in these things. I think that you're talking about the well-meaning people. I think even in employment discrimination, whatever, I, I, I suspect, and I certainly can't speak overwhelmingly, but I suspect that most people are well-meaning. They're not sitting there trying to come up with plans and procedures to bar people or keep qualified candidates out regardless of their gender or social status, etc. I think it's a a matter of not really understanding and being aware and cognizant of it. So a campaign like the Me Too campaign helps with that, I would think. Yeah, yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. And I also think as a sort of strategic tenet of mine, that you can get a lot further assuming good faith than bad faith. So even if some number of these cases are in bad faith, I think you make more progress by assuming they're in good faith and moving in that way as in a more educational mode and a more kind of expository, this is what happened to me, I'm not claiming that you were at fault, but here's here's how I see it and here's how I see it. And, oh, even Gwyneth Paltrow had this happen to her. And you get a little bit of... Um, um, affirmation from people you wouldn't have thought this would have happened to along with people who are just like you and me and uh, that this could happen to it it just creates a kind of um, maturation and understanding of these issues that that we don't get to I don't think nearly as well when we're accusing each other of um, of bad things so there is a place for accusing things. I mean, I believe in the law, and I believe in calling out people when when you have a, 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 a clear violation of it. But a lot of what has to be done next are not, as we said before, not the clear, blatant um, uh, infractions, but rather um, ignorant behaviors, ones where we are not quite as in touch with our own place in society and our own motivations to understand that what we're doing um, could be better. Yeah. 
Well, and the, another difficulty I would think is that when we're talking about the law, it's really not the law. It's a series of laws. It's a series of courts. It's a series of jurisdictions. It's a series, series of levels. And uh, it's not a thing. It's a whole huge bag of things that each have their own individuals who are there with their prejudices and their experiences. I mean, it's it's overwhelming to think of it. So when during our conversations we're talking about the law, the law, it makes it sound like it's simple. Well, if that's like it's the cup, you know, or the coffee table, but it's not. It's huge. It's yeah. complex. It's rambling, and it's impacted, I would think, at every level by the individual, whether it's the person standing there at the front door at the courthouse or the person sitting on the Supreme Court. Each of us sees things with our own eyes and our, through our own experiences. So it's an overwhelming thing. And when you're talking about making changes in the law, it's not a change. I mean, for the most part, I, mean, I suppose there is, you know, uh, at certain levels, a change that can be made that impacts everything. But for the most part, it, it's it's a series of things, which is why we've been working on it for 30 or 40 years, right? Right, so, right. And, and yeah. these, even if you have the prohibition that's applicable, so to, to put it all down to some manageable law, so to, single law, so to speak, there are issues about how you prove a violation of that law. So we have burden to prove all kinds of procedural issues and burden of proof um, questions that mean that something something may have happened, but you're not. I mean, this is especially in this unintentional discrimination area. Something bad may have happened, but you can't prove what you need to prove beyond by by a preponderance of the evidence. So that also that's another piece of the law. It's it's kind of the provability of 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 um, something of a of, of a of a prohibition, a violation of the prohibition. Though, yeah, that being said, though, um, the law, even if we can't prove uh, in a court, even if we can't, for example, if there's some sort of implicit bias or uh, whatever, even if you can't take that money to the bank, even if you can't go to court and win a case based on something, when the more and more and more these individual small pieces happen, the more it impacts how the law is carried out and viewed, even if there's not an actual lawsuit that wins something. Um, it, so there it, is a again. lot of, yeah. So we call this the expressive value of the law. And there, and there is a kind of educative purpose. There's, there's, a, um, there's an, ex, there's an ex, expressive value, a normative. It helps to create certain norms to have laws on the books, even though they're not, we can't often prove their violations. On the other hand, we don't like to have, especially criminal laws, we don't like to have laws that um, that you can never, that you can never, we, we don't like to have purely symbolic laws. Um, it's just going to be a bias of the system to have something, that, that we want something that's practical that really works. And when, law, when laws are being put together, how it works um, is going to be a big part of the debate about how it's structured. So, um, and it's 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 again, it's hard to know in this implicit bias here. You could say, you know, thou shalt not engage in implicit bias. I, you know, I don't know if that does any good or not because without knowing um, how you would ever prove it, you don't actually know what it is. Um, it's kind you, of like saying, "Don't have any bad thoughts. Don't have evil thoughts." Yeah, exactly. Ex that's that's a yeah, exactly. 
you know, how how do I know you're having evil thoughts? Well, I think I can uh-huh. tell because of the expression on your face, okay? Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a very, you know, it's funny to me as, as a layperson who is not involved in the law or, you know, other than most people ever get involved with the law, um, that it is such, we view the law as, as, as concrete. We view it as, you know, some sort of marble sculpture that is solid and forever. But, in fact, it's quite slippery. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, it's it's just quite slippery and it's hard to pin down. It, it appears to me. If we're talking gender in the law, what what's in the future? What's what's happening right now? What are the areas where people are working to address this, or are they working in all areas? Is is there anything you can identify to give us a clue where we're heading from here? So, in terms of trends, I think we're going to see more and more attention given to the interface between class, race, and sex discrimination. So there's been a number of critiques in the popular press about feminism having, again, done well for the already privileged who wanted to be treated the same way a man is treated. Less attention has been given. Certainly there's been less success in working at the intersection of class, race, and and, um, gender discrimination. And and I see, at least in the academic world, um, much more attention being paid there. I mean, you you see this in some sub-areas, and you also see it across the field, across across the area. So, you know, reproductive rights, um, of course, we still have um, some retrenchment going on in many states in this area, but to the extent that there's um, I'd say a healthy amount of feminist activism. It's not dedicated just toward preserving rights that were created uh, back in the mid-70s, but um, paying more attention to the resource issues, to the the actual access, um, to what children are taught in schools about sex. You know, sort of really kind of back back to the back to the issues as bread and butter issues and not just elite white women issues. Um, so I, I think, I think there's going to be, you know, much more attention to the, the, the interrelationship between, um, between sex and class with, with race as well. What about transgendered issues and gender uh, identity issues? Do you see that as a, a major area? Certainly in the last year or so, we've been um, reading a lot about that. Yeah, so that is a, that is a big that is a big area. That's not an example, you know, that's obviously kind of in the other column. It's not in the area where we're looking at it more as a class issue. It's it's more as as a kind of individual um liberty and um a, a definitional issue about what what sex is and it it's it has the same features as I was talking about earlier in terms of society having been structured to think of sex in a certain way and being relatively inflexible, at least until recently, and thinking of sex as something that could be changed. I mean, part part of the whole sex hierarchy system has been built on the assumption that you are a man or a woman, period. Mm-hmm. And that you that was determined on day one and there's there's no no changing it. So it's pretty upsetting for people who who want to continue to think about sex in traditional gender role ways to have sex itself be a moving part to have that be something that is not immovable not not you know not 
permanent, not natural, not the only way to be. So I think the transgender issue, in addition to the individual lives that attention on this issue will improve, um, also is a, is a pretty uh, foundational issue in terms of how we think about sex as not being um, a fixed, uh, fixed, including, you know, I, would, I think there's some potential to have that expand be it's not fixed in terms of whether you're a man or a woman. It's also not fixed in terms of who we understand women to be or who we understand men to be. That will be a very healthy um, additional understanding about sex and how we keep uh, women in their place. So I, th I think it's a, um, it, it's, it's an issue that the gender movement that feminism generally is going to benefit from. It's not a class issue. So um, you sometimes see in these critiques of feminism that it's kind of gone off the rails by only in being interested in these kind of fringe issues that don't help very many women. It's sometimes on that list um, as things that shouldn't be of such great interest to feminists. For the reasons I gave, I think it is a really important issue, but it isn't an issue that tells us very much about the, the overlapping structures of gender, race, and class. Um, so... Um, it's just that, an that observation. Makes that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I, I know sometimes I, I look, and I'm not quite sure what to do with it, but, you know, many of the domestic, you know, we changed from domestic violence to, you know, domestic abuse and then to, uh, you know, intimate partner violence. And now mm -hmm. uh, all the organizations and the buzzwords seem to be trending toward gender violence, gender violence. Mm -hmm. which, mm -hmm. So it can include transgendered violence. But I often wonder, gee, are we watering down what started out as domestic violence by making it too broad? Are we good? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have an answer for that, but it has crossed my mind. Um, by so, all of these issues. Yeah, some people so ask. Some people. Some people make the same point about are we watering down feminism by enlarging it to include other systems of oppression? So that that's kind of a endemic, chronic problem. And to me, the answer is there's going to be advantages and disadvantages. Both there are costs, and there are also advantages. So. It's a strategic yeah. question. Well, and and who says that we can't, you know, work it that way for 10 or 15 years and then create a bat, change it back if we need to? You know, I mean, mm -hmm. there is nothing, uh, there is nothing except change that's consistent, right? Right, um, right. So anyway, well, I have had just a delightful time talking with you, Kate. I I really appreciate this. I've learned a lot. Um, is there anything that I could do? for example, or a listener of this program could do to either become more informed or to participate in some way that you can think of? I come, I'm kind of springing that on you, so if you, nothing comes to mind, that's fine. But I thought, you know, if, so if I something don't, does... Yeah, I don't have an organizational hobby horse at the moment that I can refer people to. I, I just urge folks to have their antennae up in all aspects of their lives to understand how we as a society have organized ourselves in ways that so often makes discrimination and hierarchy invisible and work in our own personal lives to expose what we can that's, that seems uh, discriminatory and unfair to people and, and try to improve it. I think that's great advice. Hey, thank you very much, Catherine Bartlett from Duke University. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for I sharing enjoyed it. your knowledge and understanding and on gender and law. Join us again next week. I'm Heather Star. We'll be right here on Thank you. Freeway.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.